what we can say is that we know that every time we use an antibiotic, there is the potential to promote antimicrobial resistance. Um, and so we want, we want to keep our use to the minimum necessary. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. Welcome to this episode of The Beef Show Podcast. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University, and our guest today is Dr. Brian Lubbers. Dr. Lubbers is currently an associate professor of food animal therapeutics at Kansas State University. Dr. Lubbers began his veterinary career as a private practitioner in California and Iowa, working primarily with dairy and beef producers. In 2005, he returned to Kansas State University, where he completed his PhD in microbiology with an emphasis in pharmacology, and he served as the director of clinical microbiology at the Kansas State Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory for 10 years. He is a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Clinical Pharmacology and currently serves as the chairholder for the CLSI Veterinary Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing Subcommittee. His teaching and research interests are antimicrobial stewardship and therapy, antimicrobial resistance, and application of diagnostic testing in food animals. So welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you very much. That's a kind of a long introduction to say I like I like to study antibiotics in cows, but yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, I love it. As a nutritionist, my favorite thing to tease the vets about is how everything has to have multiple syllabus or, um, you know, a multiple syllabic vocabulary, right? And it's like, why couldn't you just say he died of bloat? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try to avoid that today. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, we're excited to have you here. Um, and I, I have collaborators um, here at Iowa State, uh, Dr. Jonah McGill for example, over in our College of Vet Medicine, that we work on things like bovine respiratory disease. And I know that that's something that you have a history um, in. So I thought maybe that would be a good place where we could kind of stop, talk, start talking. Um, it is uh, weaning season right now. We have calves that are being commingled as they come into the feedlot, multiple owners, maybe putting pens together. What are some of the top things that we think producers should have front of mind right now as we think about starting to build those pins? Yeah, so if we're if we're talking about and and we we have to understand we have we have two sides to that coin, right? We have the cow calf producer um, and things that we want them to be thinking about, and then we have um, the feedlot operators on the other end of that kind of that other end of that spectrum. So um, let's, I think we should maybe start even with the cow-calf, Stephanie. So, um, you know, we, we talk a lot about getting calves ready for the feedlot. Um, and so um, things that, things that we want. And, and again, the, one of the, one of the challenges I think we have in the beef industry is, you know, we're, we're not, we're not vertically integrated and we still struggle immensely with um, information flow from from both of those aspects, um, as well as um, how do people on one side of that coin, it, I'll say get paid, but really benefit from from what happens on the other side of the coin. And it, and it actually, we think a lot about, you know, we want people in the cow-calf industry to do things that benefit 
the feeder ca- the feeder calf industry, but I think there's some things that we want to happen in the feeder calf industry that also benefit the cow calf industry. And so, um, it, you know, that's still it's still a huge challenge for our industry is getting, like you said, information and benefit to go both ways. So, um, but I think as far as our cow calf producers go, you know getting those calves ready for the feedlot. Um, we want to make sure that calves are properly vaccinated. Um, and I, do you guys still have green tag program in Iowa? We do. I think we have a green tag, maybe a gold tag as well. Okay. There's a couple of different programs. Um, yeah. So that would be vaccination, minimum days of age, um, days weaned. Um, weaning, weaning, yep. 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 So those, you know, and those programs are, that's, those are the things we want, right? We want calves that are, are ready to, to go in and will perform well early in the feeding period, because we know that when calves get sick, um, a, we have, we have the health issues that go along with that. Um, we have the performance issues that go along with that, but then we also have kind of the public perception of sort of the animal welfare aspects of what go along with that. So, but those programs are, you know, they'll outline a lot of things I talk about, but, you know, having calves properly vaccinated for the feedlot, making sure that they're um, weaned adequately before they get to the feedlot, right? So not the day before or not on the truck. Um, we want to make sure that they're, they're actually weaned from mom before they leave. Um, and we'd like to have them. And again, you know, how, how this benefit goes is the challenge, but I mean, you know, we'd like to have them, um, ready to eat out of a bunk, you know, be familiar with those kinds of things. And so, um, though, if, if you're in one of those programs, you're, you're probably doing those things, but those are the things we like to see. And then as those calves transition to the feedlot, um, we have to, we have to do some of that as well. Right. So we have to make sure that when calves get there, um, that they are ready to eat out of a bunk. Um, they know what the water source, uh, how to get to water. So, um, things that we think about. So if you have the ball water systems, you know, locking those open make sure, you know, if, if these are calves that, are used to drinking out of a pond and now you put them in one of those systems, they may be unfamiliar with that. And that, that causes, can cause some health challenges for us. Um, and then we want to make sure that, um, we are moving them up through their rations appropriately. Right. So we can't, we don't bring calves off of mom and put them on a high concentration ration. That's, that's not a recipe for success. Right. Now there are some things that happen in between where maybe we're not exactly sure what the best best path forward is um you know and there's been some studies that have occurred recently where people have looked at things like um, delayed vaccination so how long do we let calves rest as they enter the feedlot before we start processing um is that was that is that 24 hours is it 48 hours um there have been some studies that look have looked at even up to two weeks after arrival um and and like I said, that's pretty recent research. And so I think we're still investigating what's the, what's really the right optimal recommendation for people as calves transition into the feedlot. Um, but, you know, and again, one of those challenges that we have is that flow of information. And so, you know, what, what will commonly happen is as calves enter the feedlot, we will revaccinate them. Um, most of the time, it's not because we're trying to boost immunity. It's because we don't have a history. And so we're just making sure that those calves have some vaccine. We know that doing it 
at arrival, certainly not optimal, right? Because the vaccine response, you know, when we vaccinate a calf, we're relying on their immune system to provide that protection. And that takes time. Um, usually a couple weeks would be kind of a minimum, we would say, to build up immunity to those those antigens or pathogens, viruses, bacteria, whatever's in those vaccines. Um, and so doing it as they get into the feed yard or even with a little bit of delay, when we know that that disease challenge from mingling pens, mingling calves from different sources, we know that's where the stress and the challenge is. Um, we're really, we're really behind the eight ball at that point. So uh, something is probably better than nothing if the challenge is delayed, but uh, we know it's not protective as if we're giving vaccinations coming into the feed yard. Yeah, I, I want to touch on a couple of things there. Um, so information is power in this industry, right? Because like you said, we're not vertically integrated the way that the swine and the poultry industries are. And, you know, a lot of beef producers would say there's there's a lot of good things from that. And I always joke that our greatest strength in the beef industry is the same thing as our greatest weakness. And that's our independence, <laughs> right? We're yeah, such no, an independent... Absolutely. Yeah, you know, we're so much more resilient against the disease issues and in some of the things that might, you know, hit the swine in the poultry industry, but we struggle to speak with one voice, right? And so that means that our power is significantly diluted compared to other industries. But so what you really talked about there was how important it is to build relationships, right, between the cow-calf segment and the feeder segment where you could say, hey, I'm, I'm doing everything right in my cow calf operation, I'm giving, I'm using the right genetics. I'm using the, the right vaccine schedule. I'm not doing all that stuff the day that I weaned and I didn't wean on the truck. They know how to eat out of a bunk. What are you going to pay me for this animal? Right. Cause I'm bringing you a premium product. And then the feedlot recognizing, yeah, I don't have to vaccinate them again, or I can just do a booster and can control that risk. So yeah, I always encourage producers to try to figure out how they can build those relationships. Sure. And and it depends. You know, we do. I mean, we have cow-calf producers that do retained ownership through the feed yard. So they, you know, there's that's kind of the in-between ground, right? For So that that's more of a, it's not a vertically integrated system, but it, it mirrors that a little bit closer, right? And so, um, yeah, it, you're right. I mean, there are the diversification of operations we have is is a strength of the beef industry but it also limits some of the things that we're able to do as an industry just and again from my perspective it really is about the lat the there's the communication breaks that occur along the chain where i think if we could close some of those gaps i think we'd we'd actually across the chain be a little bit stronger. So, um, yeah, I, I agree totally those relationships and, and working towards, um, again, as a cow calf producer, getting that information fed back to me, because, you know, we, we have conversations with cow calf people and feedlot people here in Kansas. And, you know, kind of what we hear is the cow calf producer there, if it's not a retained ownership situation, they go through and, and their calves are healthy when they sell them. And so they get no feedback that, Hey, they were great. They look great. They were healthy. And then they got to the feedlot and something went wrong. And, and you always probably have those one-off situations where you just kind of have that perfect storm of events, whether it was the way they were commingled or the certain pathogens that they encountered at the feedlot and they just had a disease outbreak. Those happen, but we hear stories about where it consistently happens, right? And but the, there's no way to get the information back to the cow calf producer unless they just get refused to 
nobody wants to buy their product. Right. Um, and so I, I do, I think, I think that's where, you know, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get to this at some point, but you know, where are we going as an industry? I think that's one of the places where we really need to look at how do we close. And, and I, I gave the negative example. I should really give the positive example, right? Where somebody is consistently on the cow-calf side producing product that does well, performs well, um, is healthy through the feeding period. How do we get that information back to them that, hey, you're doing a great, keep keep going. Um, whereas that person that the calves look, look healthy at arrival and then they don't do well through the feeding period. How do we get that back to, you know, we think... It might be a management change. It might be a genetic change. What are the factors that we can to help you actually produce a better product um, for the for the feeding industry, but really for the end consumer? That's what we're looking for. Right. And so, you know, kind of to transition that to your area of expertise, Brian, you know, one of the major changes that we've experienced in recent years has been things like the veterinary feed directive, and then thinking about how we really focus on judicial use of antimicrobials in our livestock production. Um, so to me, that seriously incentivizes the building of those relationships between those segments, right? Because we do want to think more carefully about whether or not we use processes like metaphylaxis. So talk to us a little bit about what producers should be thinking about right now in terms of um, how, maybe even thinking about like about designing the way that you would want to have an antimicrobial program work um, in, well, maybe just stay in the feedlot for right now, and then we could back up into cow-calf. Wow. Okay. How long do we have? <laughs> uh, 30 minutes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, because, and I think, you know, one of the, it's, it's a question that I commonly get, and there's a few of us here at K-State that kind of work in this area, you know, is this, um, is what we have seen recently with the antimicrobial use, uh, say regulations, but it's not all regulations there. Uh, some of it is, is being moved forward through, uh, the retailers or private sector as well. But, you know, is this a trend that, that we see continuing? And I, I, absolutely. Yes. It, it, this, the, this is not going to go away. Um, you mentioned the veterinary feed directive, which has been the revision of the veterinary feed directive occurred three or four, five years ago. Some, I think it was 2018. I think we're getting close to five years now. Um, you know, in this coming summer, so summer of 2023, uh, we're going to see all over-the-counter antimicrobials. Uh, they're going to be moved to prescription. So those those products are going to – there's going to be a change in the regulations there as well. Um, and and a lot of this is, is being moved forward um, – I'll say generally due to consumer preferences, right? And so I don't, I don't see that changing as a trend, right? Um, what exactly is coming down the pipeline next? I don't know. Um, if I had that crystal ball, I probably wouldn't use it for good. But um, I, I, you know, I'd certainly, I'd certainly share that information. But I, I, I think it's pretty easy to say yes, we're going to continue to see changes. What the next change will be, I, I don't know that anybody really knows. Um, Certainly, we have seen regulations at the state level um, that are moving to track on-farm use, and so and we've we've participated in a, a voluntary project with the FDA. We just wrapped that up a few years ago that looked at how what 
kind of what that looks like. So what, what would that look like to actually measure use on farm? Um, and to do it on an individual, I'll just to give you the brief summary, um, to do it on individual farm, you can put some systems in place and it depends on what their, what their prior record keeping looks like and things like that. Um, with, I would say with minimal burden, um, depending on how much information you want. If you just want to know overall amounts, you can track that through prescriptions and it's not super difficult. Um, if you want to, what we think is important, which is related to um, treatment outcomes and things like that, that that aren't just the regulation burden, but they actually may have some benefit to the producer themselves. Like, hey, we're using a lot of antimicrobials to treat this. And we also find that maybe it's not working as well as we thought it was. And so we can make some improvements, not just reduce our use, but actually make some improvements in our disease outcomes, which we, that's what we think is beneficial. Uh, that requires, it requires a little more work. Um, and I will say the bigger challenge isn't necessarily doing it for a farm, but it's then if somebody wants to monitor across an industry, then it, then there's a lot more challenge trying to get all of the farm systems similar enough that you can make the data make sense. So um, I, I think that I think that is probably coming on some level. Certainly in Europe, they have um, antimicrobial use monitoring programs on farm um, that regulate how much you can use, right? And if you go over a certain amount for your type of operation or size of operation, um, then there are some interventions that happen. I don't know if we're quite headed that far, but the monitoring, yes, people are asking about it. Um, so I think it's coming what exactly it looks like in the final form. I, I don't think anybody knows right now. So, but as I was saying at the state level, um, there are some regulations in a few states that are tracking, they're working towards tracking on farm, um, at the state level. So I think you know, one of the things that I expect probably before my career is over is to see that in some way, shape or form across the industry. No, well, so I was just going to follow up. So do you think that, uh, you know, as there has been more scientific focused on antimicrobial resistance and learning more about some of the different um, things that would truly be effective against the different targets, right? Um, that has definitely been eye-opening to me in the last few years, just even the different targets and all the different classes of drugs that are available for them. And I'm not a vet and don't play one on YouTube, so I'm not going to pretend to understand all of it. But do you feel like there is an opportunity, you kind of alluded to this, for us to get much better at using the right thing in the right place, which hopefully will overall decrease production costs instead of just being like, let's just use this one thing for everything, but it's really not very good at that, you know, things like foot rod or something like that. Yeah, I think, um, so there's a couple things in there. So one, you know, we, we meaning I'll just say society as a whole, um, to say, to, to assign an actual burden of risk to antimicrobial resistance to any specific use of an antibiotic in production. It, it, and what I mean by that is if, if I'm treating a cow in a cow calf operation that's out on pasture for pink eye and I'm treating a small number, right? Does that have the same risk for promoting antimicrobial resistance in bacteria that would be of concern for people as administering mass medication on arrival at a feed yard. 
and I think we'd all kind of say probably not one is higher or lower, but how much higher or how much lower and how much absolute we, we don't know. And nobody does, right. There's it's becomes kind of this black box because, you know, in agriculture, we're not the only ones that use antimicrobials and the ways that antimicrobial resistance moves from a farm system to a human population or back. It's very, very complicated and we just don't know. So it's hard to say, if we stop doing this, we would cut resistance by X percent. No, nobody can say that, right? Um, what we can say is that we know that every time we use an antibiotic, there is the potential to promote antimicrobial resistance. Um, and so we want, we want to keep our use to the minimum necessary. Right. And then now we're, again, we get into kind of fuzzy terms, you know, what, okay, what's necessary. And, um, I think on, on the agriculture side, we have maybe a slightly different view than other people outside of agriculture, but I think we do want to be responsible, right? We recognize that we have a responsibility. Um, antibiotics are, uh, we call them a societal resource, right? We're not the only ones that use them, um, but we all want to benefit from them both in animal health and human health. And so we, we do want to be good stewards of our, of those resources. So um, the, the other so beyond just the risk is difficult to assign, right? And so um, that's where the monitoring gets a little bit difficult because we can say someone's using more than someone else, but we don't necessarily know that it's just the amount that plays into it. It might be the specific type of use. It might be specific disease retreat. Those things may matter. Um, but the other thing and that we need to pay attention to in agriculture is it's the resistance issue isn't just about resistance that's occurring in people, right? We also use antibiotics to maintain animal health. And so um, when we use those, we also have the potential to promote resistance in the bacteria that we're concerned about. So you mentioned bovine respiratory disease earlier in the podcast. <clears throat> um, certainly we've reported it and some other people have reported it too, that we are seeing antibiotic resistance in pathogens that cause respiratory disease in cattle. So uh, we, we just want to make sure that our use is consistent with trying to maintain the efficacy of antibiotics for as long as possible. So that, and again, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to be on the fence and not give direct answers, but that's really the state of where our scientific knowledge is, is there's a lot of things we don't know. And so we try to sort out what we do, what we don't, and what is the best use that's consistent with what we think right now. Well, I think that's a great, that's a great answer, Brian, because really at the end of the day, it's a very complex subject that has been super oversimplified by those who want to use it as a weapon, right? On on either side, right? So it's just such a great example of how complex of an issue it is. And actually, as a scientist, I look at it and think, what a great example of a place where systems-based research is going to be really important, right? Because you know, as a nutritionist, I think about how I know nutrition nutrition of the animal influences their susceptibility or resilience to disease state. Or I might think about the fact that if I don't handle my animals properly when they're, you know, working on cement or something, I could create hoof damage that might, you know, make them more susceptible to something like foot rot and then require an antibiotic to treat it. And those are just two examples that I'd be familiar with. There'd be lots of other places for kind of a systems-based approach to continue to improve our herd health. 
Yeah, and, and and that's actually a really good point because when we talk about antibiotic stewardship within our group here, I've never I've never put it in the systems based thinking. I, I've never used those words, but that's exactly what it is because we think we define stewardship as you know the first step in antibiotic stewardship are the husbandry and management things that I do to prevent the disease from even happening in the first place. Right. And I think that's, that's one thing as a, as an industry that we can communicate with people outside of ag is, you know, when they ask us about antibiotic stewardship, before we start talking about, well, we use the drugs judiciously because, because we'd use them this way, this way, this way. I think the first thing that we should say is, we're good stewards of antibiotics because we do we do this with husbandry, we do this with nutrition, we do this with vaccination to prevent animals from ever getting sick. Because I know that if, and again, back to the point is every time I use an antibiotic, I have the potential to promote resistance. Well, the flip is true too. Every time I don't use an antibiotic means that I didn't promote antibiotic resistance. And so I think the starting point for any antibiotic stewardship discussion is about disease prevention broadly, like not just vaccination, but husbandry, management, nutrition, all of that. Yeah. And even circling back to kind of where we started this episode, talking about preconditioning programs, you know, one of the things that our research program is interested in is how do we promote things like the right nutrition? It's not just they saw a feed bunk and they got fed sort of kind of out of it for 45 days before they, you know, went to the sale barn, but it's that they had the right, you know, micronutrient nutrition, for example, with my area of expertise being like mineral nutrition, um, and thinking about, I mean, even just the challenges of that kind of blows the mind, right? How are you going to prove that somebody fed 60 parts per million of zinc to that calf for, for 45 days, right? Like, I'm not saying we need to go there, but I like the thought that it is more than just, well, I, I stuck him with the right thing with the needle, right? And, you know, I took him away from mom 45 days ago. <laughs> Get on the yeah, track. <laughs> I, no, it's a, it's a great example. Like you said, how complex it is because we know that those micronutrients have an effect on the immune system. So if I'm deficient in a micro micronutrient and it suppressed the animal's immune system or the immune system wasn't as active as it should have been and can't respond to a vaccine, now I have an animal that's sick. Whereas if we can correct that or even prevent it up front, you know, I think we'd much rather somebody use the proper micronutrient package up front as opposed to the right antibiotic in a secondary situation. Everybody would, right? We use less antibiotics and then we end up with an animal that didn't get sick and probably performs better than one that even if we treated it successfully, it's probably not going to perform as well. So no, you're right. I Now I'm going to have to start using systems-based thinking language when I talk about antibiotic stewardship. Yes, I like it. <laughs> okay, so I know that you are also um, a teacher, right? So you've got some, a teaching role there as well. So um, I have both undergraduate and graduate teaching responsibilities in, in ruminant nutrition and advanced nutrition, but I also advise undergraduates, and I have quite a few who are on the pre-veterinary track. Um, and so I wanted to take advantage of this opportunity to ask you, what are some of the experiences or opportunities that you think those undergrads should really be actively seeking out while they're working on their bachelor's degree to really help them be prepared for vet school? Maybe outside of the, you need to shadow a vet and run around and figure if this is really what you want to do with your life. 
No, that's a good question. Um, so I would say, um, I'm trying to think back because I have, I've in the past, so my role here at Kansas state, so I teach in our veterinary curriculum. Um, I teach pharmacology a little bit, a little bit of pharmacology in our second, so our program is four years long, the second year. And then most of my teaching is actually in the third year. I teach in our food animal medicine class and I teach in our clinical pharmacology class. Um, and I also just recently um, started a program. It was a, a USDA funded project um, where we used we used telemedicine. We used Zoom sessions and had practitioners zoom in and present cases to our students of things that they see every day, right? Because that's, that's one awesome. of the things here. Uh, we're a university referral hospital, and so. Um, I won't say all our students do get good exposure to kind of those everyday cases, but a lot of their exposure would be to referral cases that are, you know, advanced. Other practitioners have seen it and sent it here for our, our specialists to manage. Um, and so we've, we've had students as early as the first year now that come in and they sit in this 30 minute session and they talk about one case and it's one more exposure to one case. So um, that does. And then I do do some graduate teaching as well, but the question you asked about students getting prepared for veterinary school, I'm trying to think I've interviewed students in the past and I'm trying to think, you know, kind of the big things that we see um, as students come in um, that they, one is a clear understanding. And I know you said don't beyond just shadow vet, but they really do need to have a clear understanding of what they're getting into. Um, <clears throat> our, our profession is, um, you know, it, we, first of all, it's a profession, right? So we, we feel that that has some specific connotations and we want students to really understand what it means to be a professional. Um, but the other thing is, um, we, our profession covers a wide variety of career opportunities. And so, um, and, and that's one of the things I really like about being a, a graduate veterinarian is, um, there's a lot of different things I can do. Um, because I'm trained very broadly. And so I, I think having a clear understanding of what they're getting into and what the potential opportunities for for them might be. I, I don't now I want to be clear. I don't expect students to come in and necessarily go, well, I want to graduate and I want to do this exactly. There is still a little bit of exploration that happens. And I'll use my own story. And as an, as an example, if you would have asked me when I was admitted to veterinary school, what I was going to do when I graduated. Um, first of all, I never said, I would never would have said, I'm going to go back to the university and teach. So I, I would, did not, did not see that in my career. Um, I probably would have told you I'm going to be a B for mixed practitioner somewhere in Kansas. Um, and I ended up in a primarily dairy practice in California as my first job out of school. And it was a great experience and I'm glad I had it. So um, we, we don't, expect that level of detail, but we do want students to kind of know what the profession entails, what they're getting into. Uh, we want them if, as they move through the program and, and at Kansas state, and I would imagine at Iowa state as well, um, it is a program where a high percentage of the graduates that get admitted graduate. So what we don't want is a, is to have a bunch of students come in, go through our program and then be dissatisfied with their career because they didn't know what they were getting into. So some, I would say very strong career aware, awareness would be a good thing. And you can get that by shadowing a veterinarian. And I encourage people actually to shadow multiple veterinarians because clinic A may not look like clinic B. And so um, get kind of that variety of exposure. But there are also some internship opportunities. So um, you 
you're a new beef nutritionist. And so I think having students that come in and, you know, didn't, did an industry internship in a nutrition company. Those are positive experiences, right? It's still related to animal health. Um, other things that I want students, like if I'm interviewing a student, other things that I want, um, I kind of ask them about, uh, we want to make sure that they're good students, right? And so the the veterinary curriculum is, is very rigorous. Um, they take more hours per semester than they're used to in undergrad. And the classes are a lot more difficult, especially when you get into the second year where they're learning things that nobody learns in undergrad, right? So um, you may have had an anatomy class in undergrad and come to vet school and have a good foundation. Very, very rarely would anybody take a pharmacology class, right? So everything that they're learning is brand new and they're doing that across five or six classes like 24 semester hours, right? So it's it that we want to make sure that they're able to get through that. So um, we can get a lot of that from their transcript and their grades. But um, I, I, a lot of times I'll ask students about study habits. So you asked what a pre-vet student could do. Um, I would encourage them to explore some different study techniques and really do a good self-evaluation of what their study habits are. Um, our students typically in the first couple years of the program, um, they'll be in the classroom from 8 a.m. until 5 p.m. and then spend two to three hours every evening or more um, studying for that exam. So it it's a lot. And generally, <clears throat> when our students struggle, um, they say it's because they got behind in the studying. And so just having a good idea of how how that student would best study and everybody's a little bit different. Um, but is, you know, am I a note taker? Am I a rewriting notes? Do I need to re-listen to a lecture? You know, what's my, what's my best, my optimal style for learning the materials that's going to be presented. Um, go ahead, Stephanie. Do you have another question? Uh, well, I was just going to say, I teach a senior level nutrition class, advanced nutrition, and I get a lot of students who, once they go into vet school, will actually send me an email and be like, thank you for making me step up my study game because it really prepared me for vet school. And then also they feel stronger going into that nutrition class that they take in, in vet school or depending where they go. Um, but, you know, I actually, you know, these are seniors, right? Fourth year students. I spend the whole first week of class um, and they always tease me about it, but later they're like, oh yeah, we needed that. I spend the whole first week of class teaching them how to study. Be, you know, we actually watch videos and things like that. They have a, they have to make a plan for how they're going to study for my class for the semester. And then after they fail the first exam, I make them go back and look at what they said they were going to do and then actually do it this time. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, we, we always use the analogy that when you, the learning in vet school is like drinking from a fire hose. Um, it, it is the volume and the speed at which the information comes is very rapid. So yeah, having, having great study techniques coming into vet school, will will put that student up another level. Um, but you know, and the other thing that we look for, I'll just say one more, Stephanie, what the other thing that we look for, you know, we want, we generally want students that are, are pretty, pretty well-rounded, not just as far as their studies. So they they have to take so many prerequisite classes, but just more as a person, right? So we're good. We, we take great pride in, here at K-State and Iowa State is very similar. I'm familiar with their program. Um, we, we're generally targeting mixed animal practitioners, um, although our students can really go out and do anything. Um, 
And we, we know, and we want them, we know they're going to be involved in their community. So having students that come in and they have some leadership and some volunteer opportunities that they can talk about, that they can put on their application, but then they can talk about during their interview. Those are good things too, right? So um, having, like you said, it's not critical, but having a, a well-rounded experience in both the profession and life is is always a, a good piece of advice, I think, for people that are are trying to get into veterinary school. Yeah, I think that's that's really good advice, Brian. And I actually have another podcast that I co-host, and it is about um, mentoring graduate students. So it's called Mentoring Matters. And the whole thing we talk about is giving other faculty, basically sharing all the stuff we've screwed up over the years, right? And saying, you know, learn, learn from our mistakes. And um, But, you know, a big part of that was talking about, like, all the professional development skills, right? That, you know, we get chucked into a faculty position and nobody really says, by the way, you should be a people manager and you should be a budget manager. And you're like, I'm a scientist. What do you mean I have to do all these things? Um, and so we try to work to help other faculty kind of, you know, build those skills. But that's exactly what you're talking about, having those, you know, students come into vet school and be ready to say, I'm an adult now and I can multitask and I can prioritize and I know how to manage my time and all those other things that, you know, they learn along the way. Well, and and I know, and again, I'll use myself as the example. I know when I came into veterinary school, I, I really, my, my thought was, you know, I'm going to learn medicine and surgery, right? Those are the things that I, I'm going to learn in veterinary school. And then when I transitioned into practice and I did learn some of it through the curriculum, and I think we've even done a better job with our curriculum now, but there are a lot of other soft skills that really go along with being a veterinarian. Right. And so, you know, people skills are huge. Um, I, I, I was in private practice for three years and I was in academic practice for three years. And in those six years, I never once had a patient that came into the hospital by itself. Right. So, so learning to <laughs> interact with people um, and it's not just your clients, right. As a veterinarian, whether you're an associate or you're a practice owner, you are working with technicians, you're working with staff, and really you're from a authority position, you're above them. So, you, you know, you, you're not just interacting with people talking about their pets, but you're managing people, um, you know, and, and now and it's it, I even tell the students. So um, if I have a student that comes into veterinary school, even if they have no interest in food animal medicine, I really encourage them to listen and take in that information because when they leave here, they will be the expert to somebody in how, how food is produced. Right. And so whether it's not even just your clients, it, it may be somebody you run into at your church or, you know, wherever it is, um, being a veterinarian, you, have a, you're a scientist and a public resource for information, right? And so, um, people management skills, business management skills, if you're going to be a practice owner, right? Um, there's just a lot of other things that you will learn beyond medicine and surgery. And, and that's where I think having that well-rounded student comes into play, right? Somebody that understands maybe a little bit big picture beyond just doing surgery and prescribing drugs, right? So yeah, all those all those are great things to have on an application for vet school. I often tell my undergraduate advisees that um, I'm, although I'm going to use your, um, they never come in on their own idea because I like that. Um, I always tell them, you know, 
you're going to be dealing with people who are often having a very, very bad day, right? Because Bessie is, you know, having trouble calving or the cat got whatever, like, you know, this, somebody's maybe not having a great day. And just because you love animals, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be the right fit, right? So it's important to figure out, yes, you want to help animals, but also you have to figure out how to deal with people and describing your manager skills and things like you said there. So I, yeah, I think that's great. Well, and, and the other thing, you know, for, for students that are interested in food animal medicine, you, you are in, you are advising on someone's livelihood. Right. And so, I mean, we, we had a conversation with a graduate, um, a veterinary graduate a few weeks ago that is now in basically consulting to a production system. I don't know what the total dollar amount, but if I work the capital backwards, just from the cattle, it's millions of dollars, right? It's a huge responsibility. And so I think having an understanding of the economics of how that system works and the understanding of the responsibility of your role, that it, it is, it is huge. So, um, I, I would say fortunately, and my wife is actually a veterinarian she graduated from Iowa state. So I know their program as well. Um, I feel like Iowa state, K state, many vet schools, but those two that I know we produce some really high quality graduates that we're proud of and they're out there doing great things. And so, um, that, that is the expectation of a student that's coming into the program is we'll help you get there. Um, but those are the things that you can put on your resume that make you kind of be like, yep, I'm the right fit for this profession. Yeah, absolutely. So you have another podcast as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm actually so here at Kansas State, we have a group. Um, it's called the Beef Cattle Institute. Um, it's I would say it's kind of an informal collection of faculty. So we have people here at the veterinary school. Um, we have some people from animal science. We have an agricultural economist. So the regular contributors, we have three veterinarians, a nutritionist, an economist. And we um, we sit around and we talk about cattle stuff. And so you can imagine with that kind of eclectic mix of people, we we get into a wide variety of topics. Um, it's it's called Cattle Chat. So BCI, um, Cattle Chat, I, I don't know. I think you can get it pretty much anywhere you get podcasts. But um, and we take and we do, I would say for for this podcast, Stephanie, we do take listener questions. We love listener questions. So if they have something that, um, they want us to talk about, um, it's, um, the underscore BCI at KSU.edu is our, our email address. But yeah, um, we've, we do, uh, one a week. We have about 30,000 downloads a month now, so we're doing pretty well, but, um, have good listenership. And like I said, we talk about lots of different things. So, um, if somebody's interested, tune in and, have us a listen. Great. Yeah. It sounds kind of similar to our Iowa beef center here, which it's always funny when somebody wanders into our building and they're like, I'm looking for the beef center. And we're like, that's not really a brick and mortar place, but you're in the right location. <laughs> yeah. Yep. No, that's exactly what it is. Yep. Oh, I love it. It is time to our famous three. All right. So we're kind of wrapping up the podcast with these three questions. So it's kind of like our lightning round at the end here. So question number one, what is your favorite beef resource? Um, I know this is lightning round. Uh, you know, um, I'll, I'll say there's a lot of good beef quality assurance stuff. So I, I like 
and specifically in my area with antimicrobial stewardship, I like the BQA, um, NCBA's BQA resources, the antimicrobial stewardship resources. Okay. Can I yeah, give you a second like one? Absolutely. My other one, the one I use the most, and it's because I'm a pharmacologist, animal drugs at FDA. So that's their database of all the approved drug products. I probably use that multiple times per week. So those are my two favorites. Excellent. All right. What is a book not related to beef that you are currently reading? Oh, I just finished it. And I don't remember what the name of it is. Um, I can't remember the name of the book. Sorry, I'm terrible. I passed the age of 40 a long time ago. Um, I can describe <laughs> it to you, though. Um, it was It's actually the campus book read. So our, our K-State has a book read that everybody is encouraged to read, and they will do kind of book club type stuff around this one book. Oh, I wish I could remember the name of it. But this one is – it's a book about um, how – the differences between people that do and don't kind of gets into the psychology of natural disaster, or I shouldn't say natural of disasters. So it it's um, the author interviewed a bunch of people from uh, war veterans to people that survived nine 11 to people that survive building fires. Um, it, there was an Israeli security officer that they interviewed. So just kind of talking about the psychology of, of what, um, how that works, how people respond in a disaster. And I, and I will, I will email the name of that book to you because it's, it's very easy to read. It's a short book, but I, I found it very interesting. Okay. So back up a second. This is something that K-State does monthly or yearly? It's, or? it's yearly. I'm, yeah. So interesting. Yeah. Okay, cool. We've been doing book clubs with our graduate groups. So I'm, book clubs are on my mind recently. That's interesting. The other one, if you're for your uh, graduate students, and I do this for our vet students in our ethics class, there's a book um, by Rushworth Kidder, and I haven't read it for a long time, but it's how good people make, how good people make tough choices, I think. And it's about ethical decision-making. So that's a, that's a good, that's a good read too for graduate students. How good people make tough choices. Yep. Nice. Excellent. All right. Last question. Last question. What is a trait of someone you know that has allowed them to be successful? Uh, persistence. That's, nice. that's my answer for that one. Um, very, I, I don't know who said this, probably multiple people have said this, but there are very, very few overnight successes. Most of the people that I interact with or know that are successes, it, it's a long grind behind the scenes to get where they were today. So uh, persistence. Yeah, I think uh, the work by Angela Duckworth says persistence and um, passion together is what equals grit. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so very nice. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Brian. This has been really great. Mm -hmm.